Hello, and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this spring we commemorate 100 years of the RAF. With me today to discuss that is Richard Overy, distinguished historian and the author of a new book, The Birth of the RAF, 1918, published by Alan Lane. Richard, welcome. Richard, one of the things that's most striking to the lay reader at the beginning of your book is that you say that actually the origins of the RAF were political rather than military. Can you explain how that comes to be? I think the real, the real problem is that, that for the Army and the Navy, they were quite happy with the air forces they had during the First World War. Uh, and what really triggered political interest in uh, an air service was the bombing of London by the Germans. And you could almost say, in fact, it's not really a political question, but it's a, it's a question of German pressure. The Germans hadn't bombed London. Um, it's unlikely that Lloyd George would have said, we need an independent air force to defend ourselves and to bomb them back. And the RAF would never have been created. But for Lloyd George and for other politicians, the really worrying thing was that the bombing of London might in fact be uh, uh, something that triggered widespread popular unrest and dissatisfaction. There was already a great deal of difficulty about the the war gone on for four years. Uh, War weariness was evident everywhere. And this idea that somehow bombing might be the thing which would finally push the public over the brink and say, look, we've had enough, was deeply worrying for the political leadership. And so... Building the RAF was a response that they hoped would uh, somehow or other assuage public fears. Now, can you say a bit about what we had? As you say, the Army and the Navy were kind of happy with what they had before. What, what sort of did we have before? I mean, one of the things that's, again, striking is we did start to use air power, you know, in one way and another, really amazingly fast after, you know, the Wright brothers first lumbered into the air, didn't we? Mm. Yeah, the, I mean, the development of uh, air power is exponential during this period. Uh, only a few years after the, the first experimental flights, you already have military aircraft being built. You already have the first heavy bomber being built in Russia. Uh, you have the first aerial bombs being uh, being created in 1912-13 for the Balkan Wars. Britain enters the war a little bit behind everywhere else, um, but very quickly catches up, builds a, a huge aircraft industry. Uh, by the end of the war, uh, aircraft are unrecognisable from the flimsy things that were flying in 1914. Yeah, the things that were flying in 1914 were kind of amazingly flimsy. I mean, you describe that... I mean, they're all basically made, aren't they, because of canvas and wood and hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're put together, yes, indeed. Uh, you know, material, wood of string and wire, uh, carrying a rather heavy engine. One of the advantages that has to be said about these early aircraft, of course, is that you know, if you crashed, you've had quite a good chance of surviving. And if you look at the figures from the First World War, very many more aircraft are written off than pilots are killed. Roughly double the number of aircraft are lost for the number of airmen who are lost. That's because you could, in fact, land in a field somewhere, pull yourself out with a few bruises and walk away. When they came to be metal, how did that change? Did they just explode, more or less? Well, the real problem, of course, is you know, later on when you've got, you know, in the Second World War, all-metal aircraft with huge fuel tanks and so on. Once the fuel tank uh, hits the ground, it blows up, and that's it. <laughs> Not that we should go back to the original. H.G. Wells, as you point out in the book, you know, sort of in the war in the air, he kind of foresaw the effectiveness of bombing raids and the air power would have. Did that, I was curious, have an impact, do you think, upon if you like, the military development, do people sort of read Wells and go, he's onto something here? Or was that just a happy accident of 
prophecy. Well, I always like to think with, uh, with Wells that, that the book was picked up by uh, senior military commanders and so on after 1908, and they would read it and say, that's a pretty good idea. And I've still not been able to find any evidence at all <laughs> that a senior airman actually read Wells. But Wells, of course, is just the, is the tip of an iceberg. There's a, there's a lot of science fiction writing around, a lot of it about air power, what air power will do, the kind of fantasy literature that goes on into the 1920s and 1930s. And there's no doubt that airmen are bound to be affected by that. You know, they're bound to think, well, if you know, science fiction says that you can destroy a city and you can demoralise the people, then maybe you can destroy a city and demoralise the people. This business of destroying the city and demoralising the people, that came to be a very important part of what the Air Force did. But as you say, its origins as a unitary Air Force were the idea of, well, at least to start with, defence as well, that there was this fear that these Zeppelins were going to come over and drop bombs on us. Was there a clear idea of what what a unitary air force would be for from the beginning, or was that a sort of muddle? There was a great deal of confusion, I think, about you know, what, what the RAF meant. For the politicians, it was clear what they wanted was effective defence, if, if, if there could be a defence against uh, German bombing. They also wanted a force that would be able to bomb German cities, not just in retaliation, but because the assumption was that that was now the way war was developing, you know, that you would see the home front now as a target, not just the fighting front. But for the airmen involved... It, uh, it was it was a strange transition because for the Royal Flying Corps, which supported the army on the Western Front, what they really wanted to do was to, to do what they did better, to protect the army, to attack targets just behind the front line and so on. Uh, and that's what they mainly did between April 1918 when the RAF was created and the end of the war. That's what they continued to do. But senior people who had been appointed to the RAF were very keen that it would develop some kind of strategic identity. And the only way they could do that was by developing this sort of bombing force, a striking force against the enemy. And that would be something that the army couldn't do and the navy couldn't do, something the RAF could do. And so they set up the so-called independent force under Trenchard in, in the hope that somehow or other the independent force would give the RAF you know, extra strategic clout. You know, the army and the navy would have to accept that you know, the air force had a, a purpose other than simply supporting them. Trenchard, you mentioned, is obviously this hugely important figure, the first chief of staff of the RAF, and... Yet, before the RF was even thought of, he strongly opposed it. He resigned almost immediately, he became chief of staff. He had to you know, persuade him to take another senior role, it was like sort of pushing a donkey up a flight of stairs. I mean, he was a great resistor, wasn't he? I mean, what sort of man was he? Why was he both so pivotal and so resistant all Hmm. I mean, it's no doubt that Trencher was, a, was a, f- a fine leader of men and all the people in the Royal Flying Corps, of which he was commander-in-chief, later on always recalled. I mean, he was a tough man. He, he, he expected a great deal from his men, but they were loyal to him and respected him a, a great deal. So clearly, you know, he's, he has you know, real leadership quality. But the problem really was that he is an army man and he, you know, all the way through, he thinks that <clears throat> what air power will do will make it easier for the army to win the battle against the Germans. And anything which distracts from that is a mistake. And so he was absolutely determined all the way through. And then he's finally offered the job of Chief of Staff, the new RAF. And all his instincts were to say no, of course, <clears throat> because it's opposite of what he wants. And I think he says yes because he thinks or hopes that somehow or other he can, he can blunt uh, <laughs> the plans for a different kind of force. Somehow they'll be able to use that force then uh, to support the army on the Western Front. When he finds that, that he can't do that because he's surrounded by politicians and bureaucrats who he hates, he resigns. And that re- resistance, you know, which seems to be very fierce and entrenched resistance from both of the other services to the RAF at the beginning, was that essentially simply a struggle for resources or was there a, you know, a strategic 
difference of opinion there as well. Well, it's partly a struggle for resources because those are finite by the end of the war. They're pretty finite. But it is actually really a doctrinal thing. that uh, uh, The Navy assumed that if you're going to have air power supporting the Navy, it's a very specialised function. You need people trained in a different way. You need quite a different set of equipment and so on. You need naval control over it, which is actually not, you know, it's a reasonable argument. Uh, for the Army, the doctrinal thing really is that, you know, since you've got aircraft, what do they do? They do reconnaissance, artillery spotting. Uh, they bomb supply lines and reserves behind the, the enemy's front line and so on. They fight against the enemy's air force, you know, and that's really what an air force is for. So why do you need to have a, a, a separate RAF? Well, one of the answers, as you say, is that you know, they need to go far behind enemy lines and sort of sap morale and bomb cities and industrial targets. But was there a... Or how much was there a sort of conversation, given that the reaction to civilian bombing by the Germans was one of absolute moral horror. Hmm. The idea that you'd retaliate by bombing enemy, enemy civilians, which, you know, Trenchard was very open about that being what they were doing. Did that create any kind of moral cognitive dissonance or moral anxiety on the home front, or was it just yeah. a case of, you know, what sort of... Well, that's an interesting question. It certainly didn't do it in the Second World War. In the First World War, I mean, the idea was not to to present it to the public as retaliation, because it was thought that that was, that, that was not morally acceptable for civilised status and so on. And so the, the, the RAF's campaign was, was contrasted with the German campaign as indiscriminate bombing, killing schoolchildren and so on. It was a carefully planned campaign aimed specifically at military economic targets and so on, which could be hit with great accuracy and so on, and that that would actually have a real strategic purpose. So, so in a sense, the moral issue was sidestepped. But when it came to 1919, and they were drawing up lists of German war crimes for the, uh, you know, possible war crimes trials and so on. One of the things they wanted to do was to indict German flyers as war criminals for dropping bombs on, on cities and killing civilians. And Trenchard came along to the cabinet. He was invited to a cabinet meeting. The cabinet said, well, we're thinking of doing this, Trenchard. And Trenchard said, well, why, why are you thinking of doing that? I've been doing that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was, you know, so they scrapped it. Leon, there's some extraordinary kind of... Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not... Not a huge thing, but there was a lot of sort of wrangling back and forth about, you know, what they were going to wear and what insignia mm. they were going to have. And, you know, I mean, um, can you talk a bit about how that, the famous to us now, the roundel yeah. came about? Yeah. There was a great deal of argument about uh, really you know, what the RAF would look like, basically. The, the roundel, or target as it was called at the time, was painted on aircraft in 1915. Actually, the roundel originated because it just needed something, something very clear so that the French would know that it was a British plane didn't shoot it down. Something very clear to, to, to friend an enemy, if you like. Uh, uh, this was a, a British aircraft. But then it just became, you know, the target became you know, the, the symbol of the, of the RAF. And the RAF then looked around for other things, distinctive uniform, distinctive ranks and so on, a distinctive flag. And, and I, I suppose the, the problem for the RAF is it all has to be done in a matter of months, whereas the Army and Navy... They built up their traditions, their flags, their standards, uh, etc., their ranks, their uniforms over centuries, uh, and that really was the, the big difference. Yes, they weren't uh, going to give that up either. Where they, the navy were very, very kind of. You can't use an ensign. You can't yes. use anything that looks a bit like. A yes. Yeah, you can't use our ranks. You that's right. Yeah. In fact, they do in the end. They say, you know, they have air commodore, and I think that actually. The Navy, in the end, doesn't object to the ranks, which are much more like wing commander, squadron leader, much more like naval air yeah. ranks and so on. Partly, I think, out of hubris, I think they felt quite pleased that, that they'd adopted naval 
type ranks rather than army type ranks. Also, it's it was intriguing to me that it wasn't a kind of completely foregone conclusion that it was even going to be the Royal Air Force. I mean, there's this. Yeah. Where was the objection there? It wasn't an objection, it's just that when they drafted the legislation, they drafted it too hurriedly, and um, they didn't think about asking the king whether they called it the Royal Air Force, because it was the Royal Flying Corps, the Royal Naval Air Service, the, the two previous air forces both had the Royal um, uh, uh, um, prefix. I think they just hadn't thought about it, but then suddenly they wanted to call it the Royal Air Force, and the legislation was there. They, they, so they faffed about what could they do. They consulted lawyers and so on and saw this as a constitutional crisis. The king was perfectly happy, just went along and saw the so king and said, do you want to be called it Royal Air Force? And he said, yes, that's fine. I hadn't realised that the, the, the Navy actually wasn't constitutionally, the Royal Navy, it was a custom and practice thing. Yeah. That's right, yeah. The Royal Marines were, were called Royal Marines by, by some, some royal edict or whatever. But yeah, the Royal Navy was um, simply by usage. One of the things I mean, that struck me about that story but it's true, actually, of the story of the ranks, it's true of the story of the flag and so on, and the uniform, is what a large part the king played. I think we're so used to the fact that the royal family now is, is much more ornamental. But in 1918, it wasn't ornamental. You know, everything that they, they did, in the end, their reference point was, was Buckingham Palace. They had to go down and see the king, get his approval. And if he didn't like something, he didn't like something. And, and I think going through the record, that surprised me, actually, I think, the extent to which the palace was still quite deeply involved in these sorts of issues. The uh, Air Force, obviously, you know, as you describe, came in pretty much you know, towards the tail end of the war. Did they have much impact really, on the course of the First World War or the speed with which it ended? Well, the RAF as the RAF didn't have much impact. The Germans stopped bombing London, so there was no air defence to do. The independent force was a handful of squadrons which dropped uh, literally a handful of bombs on a, a few German Rhineland cities which had no impact on the war at all. But the RAF, in support of the army on the ground reached its high point, actually, in 1918. But the Royal Flying Corps could have done that, and it overwhelmed the German Air Force. It, it gave an exceptional level of support to, to ground forces and so on. So it actually ended up doing what it was the army wanted it to do. What was it that kept it going after the war? Because it wasn't a foregone conclusion at all, was it, that the RAF would continue to be the RAF? Not at all. Lord George wanted to wind it up, actually. I think he saw it like so many other things, like you know, ministers for war economics and so on, as something which would be scrapped once the war was over. So, so he gave Churchill the war office and said, take air with you, assuming that air would somehow or other be subsumed now into the war office. And Churchill then overnight became an enthusiast for an independent air ministry, an independent air Is that just because he liked flying um, himself? He liked flying, yeah. His character. Yeah, you know, he tried to get a pilot's licence in 1919 until he crashed. <laughs> and Churchill is, I mean, running all the way through the, the, the first post-war years, really is a critical figure, actually, in, in supporting the RAF as a, as a political fact. I think without Churchill's backing and uh, enthusiasm and the circle in Parliament that supported Churchill, I, I think that the RAF might well have been a victim of Treasury cuts and, and uh, army and naval spite. Clearly, you know, one of the absolute touch points for the national memory is the RAF's role in the Second World War. Do you feel... I mean, where do you think we are now? I mean, because in some ways they seem to be almost the most important of our mm. services, putting mm. the deterrent aside, you know. Mm. I think, I mean, what's interesting, I think, is that, that for the British public, 
we're locked into memory of the Second World War. So, you know, ask anybody about the Dam Busters or the Battle of Britain and you're likely to get, you know, a reasonably intelligent re- response. Ask them about what the RF has done in the 70 years since the end of the Second World War and they'll probably be unable to tell you anything. They might remember the Falklands, but then we need to remember the Falklands, of course, you know, the aircraft carriers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the RAF's role has been much more limited. Its size has been tiny compared with its size in, in the Second World War. But there's been nothing like the Battle of Britain or Danvers. And, and so I, I think that we have an extraordinary disjuncture between popular memory of the Second World War, which is, you know, all, all about the RAF, and current views of the RAF, which are not terribly well informed, where people, I think, really don't you know, quite know what the RAF does. Yeah, but, I mean, there, there was a sort of watershed moment. I think I would remember I was a colleague of uh, the late John Keegan's on the Daily Telegraph when... And he would always say, you know, you've, nobody's ever won a war from the, won a campaign from the air. And then Kosovo came along, and he yes. said, "Actually, I was wrong." So yes. unusual for a historian. Yes. But was that something that tilts that says, actually, air power now is and can be decisive, particularly in these expeditionary and yes. interventionist wars? Well, I think Kosovo is odd actually because we, we discount all the pressures on on Belgrade to give up what they were doing and pressure from Moscow and so on. And I, I think that you know, when historians un- unlock all the archives in 50 years' time, you'll see that air power is one of the components but not necessarily the chief component in explaining why the Serbs finally a- a- agreed. But the problem with that is that it did indeed create this illusion that somehow or other uh, you know, small units of aircraft and bombing selected targets might have some you know, important political value added on. And we see it in Syria today, too. We saw it with, with ISIS. But actually, if we look at the, the reality you know, in Syria and, and, and in northern Iraq, in the end, it's going to have to be ground troops. It's going to have to be people on the ground. You have to take and hold uh, yeah. ground. Right? I think for the West, the illusion that air power can deliver is very important. It means you don't have to you know, have bodies on the ground. <laughs> you can use a handful of highly trained pilots and the latest technology to be able to achieve what you want. But, we, you know, if, if we disentangle that, that illusion from the reality in Afghanistan and the Middle East or in Libya and so on, I think we'll find that air power plays a more modest role than people assume. So does that mean that in the future they'd be, come to be sort of, as it were, the, the Ministry for Token Gestures, cheap <laughs> political intervention? Yeah, well, it depends. If there's a war in the future, of course, and we had a large RAF, and, you know, then, then it would, uh, you know, we could say, you know, the RAF is now doing what the RAF ought to do. But the, the, the sad truth is that, that aircraft are enormously expensive. You know, ended the First World War with you know, 20 odd thousand aircraft. You know, it's mind boggling. You know, now we're talking in tens. We're talking about an area that, you know, if we were engaged in war, is not reproducible. You can't you know, suddenly produce 50 more aircraft to replace the ones they get. And shot just down. because they're so much more sophisticated now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, well, let's hope we don't need them. <laughs> let's Wish hope so. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> You were listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. Um, Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. And in this week's Spectator Books section, there's plenty more to entice you. We have Sean McGlynn on the Siege of Acre, the great blot on the Third Crusade. Edmund Gordon on Ian Baruma's time in Tokyo. Wallace Simpson's old friend Nicky Haslam writing about Andrew Morton's new biography of the Duchess and... Roland Elliott Brown on Chernobyl, Brian Switek on Dinosaurs, and me, Sam Leith, on LSD and psilocybin and the benefits of both. 